is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger. And this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and father. I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique, but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs. But it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him, because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic, or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant. Either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. 
As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language. That trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed his number one duty to me to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity. Not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and all month long during graduation season, we bring you some of America's finest commencement speeches, and that's from colleges across the country, our military academies. And my goodness, most of us don't remember our commencement speeches because they were, well, they weren't worth remembering. But these are some special ones, and well, we bring them to you now because so many Americans are celebrating graduation around this time. And by the way, I think we're going to try and dig up a couple of the worst graduation speeches, too. There's one in particular that's just hilarious. It's so bad, it's funny. This one, well, it was about as good as it can get. It's a speech about actualizing your potential, about Dr. Ben Carson's own journey, and how despite his incredible success, he wasn't always the brilliant mind we know him as today. You know, I am so grateful to live in America, visited 58 different countries, and I'm always so thankful to be back here, even though we have some defects, uh, which seem to be growing, but we can uh, always... Uh, <laughs> but, but that's why these graduates are here, because they're going to go out there and help heal this nation. And really, that's, that's why we get an education, so that we can use the talents that God has given us to lift others up. You know, as a youngster, my dream was to become a missionary doctor. Because I used to hear the stories in church and Sabbath school about these wonderful people at great personal sacrifice traveling throughout the world to bring physical, mental, and spiritual healing to people. And they seemed to me like the most noble people on the face of the earth. And I said when I was eight years old that I was going to be a missionary doctor. And that was my dream until I was 13, at which time, having grown up in dire poverty, I decided I'd rather be rich. So, <laughs> so at that point, missionary doctor was out and uh, psychiatrist was in. Now, I didn't know any psychiatrists, but on TV, they seemed like rich people. You know, uh, they drove Jaguars and they lived in the fancy mansions and had these big plush offices and all they had to do was talk to crazy people all day. <laughs> And it seemed like I was doing that anyway, so I said, uh, <laughs> I said, this is going to work out extremely well. And, uh, you know, I started reading psychology today. I was a local shrink in high school. Everybody brought me their problems. I would sit them down and stroke my chin, say, tell me about your mama. And, uh, <laughs> And then I went to college and I majored in psychology and oh, this was just so great. I had professors like Anna Freud, the daughter of Sigmund Freud, and I was learning all this stuff. It was so exciting. Then I went to medical school and I was gung-ho. And then I started meeting a bunch of psychiatrists. <laughs> Need I say more? No, I just, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Some of my best friends are psychiatrists. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I discovered really was um, what psychiatrists do in real life and what they do on television are two completely different things. They're actually some of the more intellectual members of the medical community. But it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I stopped and I, I said, you know, God gives everybody special gifts and talents. And he gives them to you because he wants you to use them. And I, I started thinking, what are your gifts and talents? And I started analyzing my life, and I realized that I had a lot of eye-hand coordination. 
and the ability to think in three dimensions. I was a very careful person. I never knocked things over and said, oops. It's a good characteristic for a brain surgeon, by the way. And, you know, I put all that together and I said, you'd be a terrific neurosurgeon. And, and that's really how I came to that conclusion. And I started out as an adult neurosurgeon. And uh, I quickly discovered that no matter how good an operation you did on those chronic back pain patients, they never got any better until they got their settlement. Whereas, uh, <laughs> whereas with the children, it was different, you know? I mean, what you see is what you get when they feel good, you know they feel good. When they feel bad, you know they feel bad. And uh, with, a, with a child, you can operate for 10, 15, 20 hours. And if you're successful, the result may be 50, 60, 70, 80 years of life. Whereas with an old geezer, you spend all that time operating. <laughs> they die of something else in five years. But uh, <laughs> I like to get a big return on my investment. But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like old people. I'm one of them, anyway. <laughs> but, you know, what, a, what an amazing privilege it was that God gave me, you know, to be a physician, to have an opportunity to intervene in the lives of young people and to make them better. You know, I was in Kentucky at a university. I ran into a family and they said, do you recognize this young man? And I said, he looks familiar, because I said that about everybody. <laughs> but uh, they said, you operated on him when he was one year old. You did a hemispherectomy, an operation to take out half of his brain. And he just graduated number one in his class. That's it. Boy, that was fabulous. And then my wife ran into a young lady, a beautiful young lady. She came up to her and said, are you the wife of Dr. Ben Carson? He operated on me when I was still in my mother's womb. And now she's grown up a responsible individual. And that's one of the reasons that no one will ever convince me that what is inside of a mother's womb is a meaningless mass of cells. But, but you wouldn't have thought that I was going to, uh, to realize my dream of becoming a physician. Uh, it, it didn't look like things were gonna work out. I was a terrible student, everybody, all the other students were happy when I was in the class because I was the safety net. <laughs> you never had to worry about getting the lowest score as long as I was there. And uh, they were always teasing me and calling me horrible names. But I did have a good way of getting back at people. I was good at one particular thing, and that is getting other people kicked out of class. I was an expert <laughs> at that. And I would, I would study my classmates figure out what made them really angry. And then I would just irritate them and irritate them until they were about to explode. But I would never push the last button until we were in class and the teacher was nearby. And then I would do it, they would explode, the teacher would kick them out, and I would say, yeah, this is great. So I wouldn't be the only one who didn't learn anything that day. But uh, there was this one girl in class, though. You all know this girl. Her name? Miss Goody Two-Shoes. Some of you were her, I'm sure. <laughs> Everything perfect, pristine, on time, and everybody else looked like a total jerk. I said, wouldn't it be great to get her kicked out of class? 
There was only one problem. She was cool, calm, collected. You couldn't get under her skin. But I was persistent. And I finally figured out what made her angry. The steam was coming out of her ears. She was about to explode, but I didn't push the last button. I waited till we were in class. Lo and behold, she sat right down at the desk in front of me. I said, the Lord is good. <laughs> and as the teacher approached, I started irritating her. I pushed the last button. But she didn't explode. She just quietly turned around and said, you and me on the playground at recess. <laughs> so that didn't work out all that well. <laughs> I stopped teasing people after that. And when we come back, we continue with Dr. Ben Carson. And what a story, what a sense of humor, and what circumstances he rose above. A classic American story, a great commencement speech. None of mine were like this, probably none of yours either. And that's why we bring him to you, because, well, we can. When we come back, more of Dr. Ben Carson's commencement address back in 2016 at Grove City College. This is Our American Stories. Our commencement speeches series continues. And we return to Our American Stories, and now we bring you the rest of Dr. Ben Carson's 2016 Grove City College commencement speech. But, you know, the kind of student that I was reminds me so much of so many people that we see today who really do not apply themselves and, and really don't take advantage of the education. And it is a severe problem in our country right now. It was something that my mother recognized. And she only had a third grade education. She was one of 24 children, got married when she was 13. They moved from rural Tennessee to Detroit. She discovered years later her husband was a bigamist. But she was a person who would never be a victim. And uh, she wouldn't let us be victims. And she said, Benjamin, you're much too smart to be bringing home grades like this. I brought them home anyway. But she was always <laughs> encouraging me. And she didn't know what to do. So she prayed. 
And she asked God to give her the wisdom to know what to do to get her young sons to understand the importance of intellectual development. And God gave her the wisdom. At least in her opinion. My brother didn't think it was that wise. You know, we, you know, turning off the TV and making us read books and submit to her written book reports, which she couldn't read. We didn't know that. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I started reading those books. And it was amazing, particularly as I started reading about people of great accomplishment. And I began to understand that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you in life is you. It's not somebody else. It's not the circumstances. And I started reading everything I could get my hands on within the space of a year and a half. I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class. Much to the consternation of all the students who used to laugh and call me dummy who were now coming to me saying, Benny, 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 how do you work this problem? And I would say, sit at my feet, youngster, while I instruct you. I was, uh, I was perhaps a little obnoxious. But it sure felt good to sit at those turkeys. But, you know, I just had a very different impression. And, and some of the things I read, my favorite story in the Bible, the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers. He didn't say, bummer, my own brother sold me into slavery. He said, if I'm going to be a slave, I'll be the best slave there is. And he ended up overseeing Potiphar's household, the captain of the Egyptian guard. And then Potiphar's wife saw him say, hey, I want to deal with this guy. But he had morals, he had principles. He rebuffed her, ended up in prison. Now, obviously, Potiphar didn't believe his wife, or he would have had him executed. But he had to save face for her. Anyway, he's in prison. He doesn't say, I'm living up to all the values and principles that God has given me, and I end up in prison. He says, if I'm going to be a prisoner, I'll be the best one there is. And then he winds up with a responsible position in the prison, and then starts interpreting dreams and ends up as the governor of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And it says to me, who is in charge? God is in charge. And his ways are higher than our ways. And we can't always see the end from the beginning, but he can, and we just have to trust him, and we have to do what's right and what he leads us to do, and he will take care of the rest of it. Understanding that, you know, I had a very rapid career. In no time, I found myself chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. There were all kinds of incredible cases that came my way. But I want to close with one case, and I think it's the definition of success. In 1997, I was asked to come to South Africa to head up a team in an attempt to separate type 2 vertical craniopagus twins. Those are Siamese twins joined at the top of the head facing in opposite directions. There have been 13 attempts to separate twins like that before, none of which had been successful. I knew it was going to be a great medical challenge, but it was also going to be a great social challenge because it was going to be done at the Medical University of South Africa at Medinsa, the only major black teaching hospital in South Africa, always the stepchild throughout apartheid and post-apartheid period. This is going to be their chance to stand shoulder to shoulder with Cape Town, Johannesburg, all the other great universities. I wasn't ready for all that social pressure. I said, Lord, greater people than me have tried and failed. You're going to have to show me something here. And as I was studying their anatomy on our 3D work workbench at Hopkins, computerized system that gives you a holograph and you could see where all the vessels are. And I said, you know, it seems like the vessels are narrowing centrally. 
And maybe we could do this all in one operation because those new collateral vessels would form during the operation. And everybody said, you're the boss, we'll do what you wanted to. Of course, that went completely against what the traditional uh, literature said. Well, at any rate, two days before New Year's of 98, big sign over the OR, God bless Joseph and Luca Banda. They were having song service and prayer service. I was thrilled. I said, can we bring in a stereo system? I love to listen to inspirational music while I'm operating. 19 hours into the operation, we were only three quarters of the way finished. The part that remained was so complex. The blood vessels were engorged and tangled. Adhesive looked impossible. We stopped went to conference. I suggested we could cover the area over with skin, come back in a few months, and maybe they would have developed enough collaterals we could cut through that area. And the doctors from Zambia and South Africa said it's a great idea. And I know it would work at Johns Hopkins, but we don't have the ability to keep partially separated twins alive. They'll die. Now I really felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. I didn't have all my fancy equipment. I have a Hopkins. I had my surgical loops with scalpel and a prayer on my lips. I said, Lord, it's up to you. Went back in there, started cutting between those vessels that were so thin you could see the anesthetic bubbles coursing through, daring you to make a mistake. Make a long story short, when I made the final cut that separated those twins over the stereo system came the hallelujah chorus. And everybody had goosebumps. And when we finished that operation after 28 hours, one of the twins popped his eyes open, reached up for the endotracheal tube. The other one did the same thing. By the time we got to the ICU, within two days, they were excavated. Within three days, they were eating. Within two weeks, they were crawling. And last year, they graduated from high school. But you know, that was not the great thing. That was not the great success. The success you had to be there to witness was the reaction of the people. This was done in their hospital, in their country. Their level of self-esteem was through the roof. They were literally dancing in the streets. And isn't that what success is all about? Taking the talent that God has given us, developing that, and using that to elevate our fellow man. Thank you, congratulations, and God's good. And what a story. My goodness. Very few people have that level of accomplishment in this world. Born of a mother who was one of 24 children and only had a third-grade education, but she would never be a victim, and she wouldn't let her kids be a victim. And my goodness, she didn't know how to get her kids to study, but prayer got her there. And this man of science, and let's face it, when you're the top pediatric neurosurgeon at one of the world's greatest hospitals, you are not a man who doesn't understand science, and he also understood faith, and the two are not incompatible. Nothing of the sort. It's a myth. And prayer, this man of science would tell all of us and did, got him through this. It got him through it. Ben Carson's story in his commencement address, and it's commencement week, it's commencement month all over this great country. And so we're bringing you some really great commencement speeches because you're probably not going to hear them in your commencement addresses at the colleges and at the local high schools. Most of them are not particularly memorable. And if they're politicians delivering them, they're most certainly not very memorable. Ben Carson's story, in a way his mom's story, and a great American story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. First responders in this country, and the men and women who serve in uniform around the world. And we particularly pay tribute to those who've paid the highest price. Today, we want to remember the life and death of Detective Micah Flick. On Monday, February 5th, 2018, Detective Flick was shot and killed while conducting an auto theft investigation in Colorado Springs, a city of nearly 475,000 people, about 70 miles from Denver. Several officers attempted to take a suspect into custody, but the man began to struggle and then opened fire, fatally wounding Detective Flick and two other deputies, a Colorado Springs police officer and an innocent bystander. Today we bring you clips from Detective Flick's funeral featuring his brother-in-law, Chris, and widow, Rachel. My name is Chris Brown. Um, I'm Micah's brother-in-law. I'm here to tell you about Micah as a family man, his humor and his quirks. So I'm going to share a couple stories with you. I I knew he's he's loved pop music, but this last Super Bowl Sunday we were gathered at the Flick house and we were celebrating with the Zynans, and I had to bring an extra TV over um, so that we had enough space and people could watch it in different rooms. So I was in the room, and I was, I was bent over like this, plugging in some cables, and Micah was standing behind me. And the next thing I hear while I'm bent over is, can't keep my hands to myself, no matter how hard I'm trying to. And I turn around to him, and I, and I said, Micah, why are, you, why are you seeing this right now? And he said, you were bent over, and I couldn't help myself. It was a nice view. The last uh, year, really, he started getting serious about his fitness, um, really serious. And his partner, I come to find out, really gave him a hard time about the fact that he was eating Chipotle burritos every day. Now, every cop in here loves a good Chipotle burrito. But it was getting a little out of control. Am I right, Trey? Getting a little out of control. So Trey gave him a hard time, and he realized that he needed to get his body back in condition so that he could better serve the community. And he did that. But what most of you don't know is when he would come home from a workout, no matter who was there from the family, the next thing he would say is, I worked out real hard. He would talk about his workout and he'd say, you want to smell me? (laughs) Are you kidding me, Micah? Come on. And then even in the last few weeks, he was like, you want to see my six pack? And that's who he was. When he gave his life on Monday, he was in the best shape of his life. He was. He was rock solid. Micah is not a victim. He's not a victim in this. Because of his sacrifice, he is a victor. He has conquered death. Because of Christ, he is victorious in his death. Micah, our many talks about God, our family, and our profession are going to stick with me till the day that you greet me at the gates of heaven. Promise to you that I will walk by Rachel and I will provide her with all the love and all the support she deserves from her brother. I promise to you that I will teach your kids to love the Lord. I will teach them of your sacrifice, your integrity, and your character. I will love your kids unconditionally as if they are my own. I love you with all my heart. You are my hero and we have the watch. And lastly, Love always wins.
So first of all, I just want to thank you so much for coming in the snow today. I know that that added a lot to the logistics of this funeral, and um, it made it harder, and we didn't need anything to be harder today. But Micah and I love the snow, and we have loved um, skiing and snowboarding as a family. And anytime there was enough snow, Micah was well known to be making um, very intricate snow forts with the kids. So um, today feels really perfect to be honoring Micah on a day that um, there is snow. And so thank you for doing that. We tease at home that Micah had no game, none whatsoever. Many, many gifts, but no game. And um, he, he told that, you know, we met at the Briargate YMCA, and one night he told me he wanted to talk to me, and I was like, oh, what's that mean, you know? Been dating for a couple weeks. And um, he, when we get in the car, and he said, I want you to be my girl. <laughs> that was how he asked me out, like, like to have like a, you know, we were going steady kind of relationship. And so... <laughs> If you can imagine um, all of his eloquence and professionalism at work, none of that transferred over. <laughs> um, <laughs> Micah loved to sing. He didn't remember the words of the songs, and um, he didn't know he didn't know the words, though. Like, he thought that what he was singing were the words. And so it's our first uh, year married, and, you know, we're getting ready for our family festivities, and he's in there ironing his pants and getting ready. And I'm in the bathroom doing my makeup, and I hear, A child, a child, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. <laughs> and I was like, there's no kid with a tail in that song, babe. And he had no idea. He was like, what? Because he was just singing, singing, singing. And that, um, that was like on the regular. Like I don't think there was a single song that he actually knew the words to. But that didn't stop him. Um, another thing that he loved to do that um, I felt privileged to, <laughs> I guess I should say privileged. I wish that he had shared that silly side with more people. But I'm so privileged that he shared it with me. But Micah loved to dance. And in the same line as his ability to sing, it was, you know, comparable. <laughs> but it was very sincere and often, you know, we'd be cooking in the kitchen and listening to some music and he'd be, you know, showing me his latest moves. And uh, I loved him so very much. I love him now and I'm so proud of him and this opportunity to honor him because... Um, you know, we knew Micah as our husband and father and his faithfulness. Um, but, you know, at his core, Micah was a hero and he was a man of excellence and integrity and he did everything with excellence. And, um, you know, I would watch him make this transition every morning from husband and father to, to his officer self, right? And so some days he'd be um, putting on a suit and some days he'd be getting into his khakis and his boots and then some days he would be getting into his street clothes with his tennis shoes so that he could go undercover, you know, and choosing shirts that were two and three sizes too big so he could hide his vest and his holster. And when he was doing that, he was giving me, you know, kind of the rundown, like, this is our latest suspect, and here's kind of what we're thinking. And, and you know, um, I know the wives 
and the husbands of the officers in this can relate when you kind of start to go like, oh, I'm not really liking where this story about work is going. And I would say to him, not infrequently, babe, don't be a hero. Do your job and do it well, but don't be a hero. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with Micah is that he was a hero. He is a hero and he couldn't help it. He couldn't help it. On, on Monday at about four o'clock, he and his fellow officers were preparing for a routine op, something they do all the time, highly skilled people, very prepared, um, and, and came into an altercation with the suspect. And the suspect um, opened fire, and Micah literally used his body as a shield and put himself between his killer and his fellow officers. And I don't know how you get much more heroic than that. His, um, his, his fellow officers on that op said, Rachel, I think we'd be doing multiple funerals if he hadn't given his life. And it's hard. I want to be jealous. And I want to have him. But I'm, I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of a man so worthy of honor. I know that you are hurting, and I love you. I see it in your faces. I see the pain that you carry because of who Micah is and because what he represents. And I know that your wives and husbands are hurting because it feels too close. And I know, I know that there are so many people in here who get that. And you are good men, and you are good women. You are worthy warriors, and you are doing everything that you can to uphold the law with truth and justice. And I see that and I affirm you. So I want to say to you, uphold the authority of your badge, not because you can, but as a sacrifice of love for your communities, for your agencies, and for your nation. We love you. And what words we just heard, words any of us would want to hear at our own funeral. Detective Flick's bride, I love him. I'm so proud of him. At his core, he was a hero. He was a man of integrity and excellence, and he used his body as a shield. I am so proud of a man so worthy of honor. And my goodness, you could hear the joy in her voice remembering how he loved to sing and didn't remember the words. We heard the joy in the brother-in-law's voice too, Chris. When he gave his life, he was in the best shape of his life. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. Love always wins, Chris said. Detective Micah Flick's story, Police Week, here on Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. And some of our very best stories have been from our listener contributors. Send your stories, your suggestions, to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, it's a whopper, and it's a heck of a business story, a heck of a story about history as well, and it's brought to us by our great friends at Hillsdale College. Over the next hour, you're going to hear the story of a man whose vision and determination revolutionized the world. Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. He didn't even invent the assembly line. But more than any other single individual, he was responsible for transforming the automobile from an invention of unknown utility and expensive curiosity into an innovation that profoundly shaped the 20th century and continues to affect our lives today. You all know his name. You're about to know his story. Here's Greg Hengler. He is arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. He was praised by everyone from Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover to the notorious gangsters, public enemy number one, John Dillinger, and Bonnie and Clyde. He's a man who changed how we all live. He gave us the Model T, the V8, and the traffic jam. Here's historians David Kennedy, Nancy Cohen, and Douglas Brinkley. Well, Henry Ford, uh, I suppose, is a candidate for this elusive title of the most representative American ever because he did and symbolizes so many uh, things that I think are characteristic of this country's historical development. The Model T greatly expanded Americans' mobility, knitting America very close together at the same time that it opened American sense of what was possible. So he liberated at the individual level, the human spirit. Henry Ford was a revolutionary. He changed all of 20th century America. We're living in Henry Ford's world right now. Johnny O'Connor owned an automobile. He took his sweetheart for a ride last Sunday. More books have been written about auto pioneer Henry Ford than any other person in the car business. Though he has critics, he put the world on wheels with his famous Model T. But less well-known is the fierce independent streak that led him to wage a lone and heroic battle for the right to run his own business. It was a struggle against the kind of people who think they should have the power to determine what is best for the rest of us. This is the story of Henry Ford. The year is 1903. America is becoming the most powerful nation on Earth, transformed by a post-Civil War wasteland into a budding superpower by a group of visionaries that have brought the country into the 20th century. Henry Ford is among this new generation of businessmen, and he is facing a new set of challenges as he struggles to get his company off the ground. Young entrepreneur Henry Ford has created a new kind of car, one specifically built for popular use. It weighs a thousand pounds, has a four-cylinder engine, 
and is capable of speeds up to 45 miles an hour. It is priced at $825, compared to $1,500 for the average licensed car, which makes it the first car affordable to the common man. But in order to sell it, he needs to get permission from the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. In the guise of protecting the public from unreliable upstarts, 11 car manufacturers form Alum in 1903. Alum owns the patent on the automobile, giving them complete control over who can manufacture and sell cars. Alum chooses the winners and the losers for the future auto industry. These social planners are, in a sense, a giant car monopoly who partner with the government, all in the name of doing what is best for us. Ford is hopeful he'll be approved by Alum, allowing him to start his own business and to pursue his dream for the future of the car industry. Here's historian H.W. Brands. When Ford entered the automobile business, people didn't drive their own cars. They had drivers. And so cars were seen as this luxury item. Ford's insight was that cars could be an everyday item. They could be very utilitarian. So that it was within the reach of ordinary people. Ford spends years developing his car for the common man. He builds his first gasoline-powered horseless carriage at the age of 33 and calls it the quadricycle. But the vehicle is expensive to produce and prone to breaking down. Ford's second attempt, the Model A, is much more suited to the needs of modern America, but he can't begin selling it without permission from Alum. Here's Henry Ford biographer Stephen Watts. Alum was successful in blackmailing other automobile companies, saying, you have to be licensed by us or we will sue you and we own this patent. After months of deliberation, the Alum board reaches its decision. Henry Ford's application is rejected. He is one of the first applicants to be refused a license. At 40, he's broke and appears to be all washed up. Ford needs to find a way around what appears to be an impassable fortification. It's a daunting task, but Henry Ford has been preparing for this moment his entire life. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Henry Ford's story, and it's true, he changed how we all lived. And we are indeed living in Henry Ford's world right now. And it's remarkable to note that up until Ford was doing what he was doing and thinking like he was thinking, people who owned cars didn't drive them. So clearly it was for the rich who had butlers, help, valets, whatever. And what Ford was trying to do was to, well, bring it to the ordinary person by bringing the price down and also by letting that person, well, drive the cars themselves. And all of our history pieces are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And that's everything from our This Day in Histories to a story like Henry Ford's, which, my goodness, you don't have to peg it to a date to want to hear more. When we return, we continue with the life of Henry Ford.
And we return to our American stories and the life of Henry Ford. And when we last left off, Ford faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles in his early 40s, broke, beaten down by a cartel. What happened next? Let's take a listen. It's July 30th, 1863. The Civil War is still raging, and it's 30 years before the first automobile appears in the U.S. Farmers William and Mary Ford have their first surviving child in Dearborn, Michigan. They name him Henry. His childhood is spent on a farm among prairies, deep blue lakes, and tall green trees. Horses and horse-drawn carriages are the main form of transportation, and hard work is the only way to get things done. Henry's parents expect all their six children to work alongside them on the land, but Henry finds the work tedious, and when he begins obsessing over machines that might make farm life easier, his parents indulge their naturally curious child. They allow him to neglect his chores and set up a workbench for him in the kitchen. Henry's father once said, he's not much of a farmer, he's a tinkerer. Here's automotive historian Robert Casey. Henry Ford was a natural born mechanic. He had innate ability. One of the first places that he was able to begin to hone that ability was when he received a watch for his 13th birthday. Like a lot of little boys who wanted to know about machines, he took that watch apart. Unlike most little boys, he was able to put the watch back together again. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, when his siblings received wind-up toys for Christmas, they had to hide them from Henry or he would take them apart to see their inner workings. In 1876, Henry's 12-year-old world falls apart. His beloved mother, Mary, dies during childbirth, along with the newborn baby. But that very month, young Henry sees something that will change his life forever. While traveling down the road with his father in their horse-drawn wagon, Henry gets his first close-up view of a billowing steam-powered road roller, also known as a steamroller, a bulky vehicle that chugged along country roads and performed farm chores for hire. Henry scrambles off the wagon and chases down the owner of this machine. Here's that moment portrayed in the 1987 film Ford, The Man and the Machine. Looks like a stove on wheels. He ain't got no horses. It's that engine making the wagon go. Hey, you come back here. Listen to your father. I've never seen a wagon move not pulled by horses. Steam power, boy. How's it work? How fast can it go? Who built it? Did you build it? For Henry Ford, this encounter was his road to Damascus, a glimpse of the full potential of the Industrial Revolution and free market capitalism. Not merely brute factory power, but mobility, the capacity of a machine to venture deep into the countryside off the beaten track, far from the railroad, and enhance the lives of farmers who had previously felt cut off from the outside world. Formal education didn't much interest Henry. He quit school after the fifth grade. And like his future friend Thomas Edison, 
and countless other youngsters across the nation, he finds satisfaction by working with his hands on a complicated task. At some point after seeing the road roller, Ford begins dreaming of building his own mobile contraption. On a cold day in December 1879, Henry walks the nine miles from his family farm to the city of Detroit to become a machine shop apprentice. It is here where he will reinvent himself. In 1885, while attending a dance, Henry Ford meets Clara Bryant. Henry impresses Clara with a watch he made. She likes that he's a serious person and willing to work hard. Then, on a spring day in 1888, wearing a wedding dress that she's made herself, Clara marries Henry Ford. Ford nicknames his wife the Believer because she never doubts his skill as an inventor. He says, It was a very great thing to have my wife even more confident than I was. Then, on a spring day, almost 10 years later, in 1888, wearing a wedding dress she made for herself, Clara Jane Bryant, who grew up on a nearby farm, marries Henry Ford. Three years later, Henry Ford takes a job at the Edison Illuminating Company, working his way up to chief engineer by the age of 31. It's here where Henry Ford and the owner of the company, the man who invents the light bulb, Thomas Edison, become good friends. During his free time, with his canny source of rugged engineering, Ford will stay in his dimly lit shed behind the house long into the night and often through the morning, secretly tinkering with machinery and doing experiments on his gasoline-powered engine. His curious neighbors ask his wife what he's doing all night long. Her response is simple. Henry is making something... Maybe someday I'll tell you about it. As the years pass, however, he begins to spend less time worrying about providing electricity to the citizens of Detroit and more on what has become his after-hours obsession. Here's technology historian John Staudenmeyer. Transportation in America was terrible once you got away from the railroads. Terrible. It was an enormous burden. I mean, if you're living on the farm... Getting around on land is one of the biggest problems people have. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, German engineers Nicholas Otto and Eugene Langen have already invented the internal combustion engine that runs on gasoline. In 1886, their countrymen Gottlieb Daimler and Carl Benz are crossing European roads in their first automobile. But Ford is undisturbed by all this. He wants to build an automobile that is superior to all of theirs. In 1893, Ford sets out to build the gasoline-powered vehicle that has been taking shape in his mind. Here's Ford biographer Robert Lacey. Henry Ford had an enormous capacity for concentration. He became something of a mad professor when he was actually working on a project. And so when he was building his first internal combustion engine, his own version of it, he got so wrapped up that he brought it home on Christmas Eve when his poor wife was cooking the turkey and getting the meal ready and everything. And right in the middle of all this, he stuck the machine on the kitchen sink, uh, screwed it to the sink, got his wife, who's, whose hands were all covered with gravy and stuff, to actually drip gasoline into the top of it. He connected the wires and started the machine and was quite oblivious to the fact that he was filling the kitchen with clouds of exhaust smoke. 
Henry Ford is determined to show the world that to succeed in America, all you need is integrity and ingenuity. Ford knows that he cannot be free to succeed as long as Alum clouds the destiny as marked out for himself. Ford is left with few options, but he isn't about to give up on his dreams. Here again is Ford biographer Stephen Watts. Ford thought that uh, the whole thing was ridiculous, uh, that there could not be a patent on the idea of the automobile, that the automobile was not the property of one single individual. Ford is determined to get around Alum's stranglehold on the auto industry, but he's just one man going up against a virtual monopoly. If he's going to be a success without Alum, he's going to need to make a name for himself. Ford writes, the public thinks nothing of a car unless it makes speed, unless it beats other racing cars. Henry Ford challenges the owner of the biggest car company in the country to a race. And talk about audacity and what a story, folks. A childhood on the farm, all he saw was horses and horse-drawn carriages, works with his hands, he's a tinkerer, totally self-taught, and right around the same time that he loses his mom, well, he also gets his first look at that old steamroller. And, well, that was his road to Damascus. And when we come back, we're going to hear about how Henry Ford, well, how he changed the world, challenged the monopoly power of a group that was essentially trying to block competition and protect their own way of doing business under the pretext of a patent that even Henry Ford thought was just absurd. How to keep a patent on something as broad as an automobile. By the way, there have been stories right up to the present day of the abuse of patents. And we've covered a few of them here. And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Ford. Again, quit school after the fifth grade. And my goodness, working for Thomas Edison at the Edison Illuminating Company in Detroit. More on the life of Henry Ford when we continue here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we return to the story of Henry Ford and all of our history stories, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, themselves a product of the great state of Michigan. And when we last left off, Henry Ford had embarked in a challenge against the most famous and the most world-renowned race car driver. And he was also in an ongoing battle with the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, known as Alum. Alexander Winton is known as the fastest driver in America and is also a prominent member of Allen. Beating Winton with a car of his own design has the potential to give Ford the boost he needs to start his own company. There's just one problem. Henry Ford has never raced a car before. Here again is Stephen Watts. 
It's a David and Goliath scene. Winton's famous world record holder has this fancy race car. Ford, the local boy, made good. For the first third of the 10-mile race, Ford legs behind Winton, struggling to control his car and the curves because he doesn't have any brakes. Then on the sixth lap, he starts to close the gap. As Winton's engine begins to overheat in smoke, the crowd erupts as Ford zooms past his rival, winning the race by nearly a mile. Henry Ford's upset win over the fastest man in America makes him instantly famous. Ford's a hero, and this is really the first big time, I think, that he becomes a celebrity. Uh, the Ford name gets out there, and he milks it for everything that it's worth. And it was a very crucial part of Ford getting investors for the Ford Motor Company. But Ford's success is met with almost instant defeat. William Murphy, his key financial backer, fires Ford and starts another car company named after the founder of Fort Detroit, the French explorer Antoine de Cadillac. Ford leaves with his name, $900, and a dream. Henry Ford raises $28,000, or $700,000 today. On June 16, 1903, Ford has enough money to incorporate the Ford Motor Company and before long, he's producing 15 cars a day, priced low enough for almost any American. But Ford's investors propose an alternative way to increase profits, by increasing the price tag of his automobile. Here again is Ford biographer Robert Lacey. From the beginning, there seemed to have been two strands in American car making. There were the people who were making horseless carriages for the rich, loading them down, making them heavy and luxurious. And then there was Henry Ford, who had this idea that a car should be able to go along the rutted tracks. It should be able to drive across a plowed field. A farmer should be able to use it and take a wheel off it and fix a chain to it and, and cut some trees down or husk some corn. That was all he was interested in from the start. Henry Ford's early success puts him on the map. Alum takes notice and hits him with a lawsuit claiming he's breaching their patent on the automobile. It's a blatant attempt to police him out of the business. But Ford's dream to make the car a necessity rather than a luxury will not be crushed. Here's Shark Tank's Mark Cuban. You see all these huge conglomerations suing people over patents. The big guys are taking advantage of the little guys, trying to find whatever angle they could and using their might. And those with the best tricksters win. Ford is convinced the era of unchecked monopolies is over. So, as his lawsuit winds its way through the court, he openly defies the order from Alum and continues building and selling his cars. Henry Ford believes there's a better way to conduct business in America, and he's determined to make it a reality. Ford's unprecedented and groundbreaking $5 a day raise is more than double the rate of most U.S. factories. He also cuts hours from 10 per day to 8. But Ford isn't just paying his workers better, he's also getting more out of them. He innovates a new system for producing cars. Rather than handcrafting each car one at a time at stationary workbenches, his are assembled by a line of workers, piece by piece. It's called the moving assembly line, and it completely changes manufacturing forever. 
Here again is historian H.W. Brands. Ford didn't invent mass production, but he perfected mass production. He understood that a complicated product like an automobile could be simplified and could be made less expensive if the same thing was produced again and again and again. Using the assembly line, Ford's workers can build cars up to eight times faster than any other automobile factory in the world. What once took 12 and a half man hours to assemble now takes 93 minutes. The innovation allows Ford to standardize the eight hour workday, five days a week. Meanwhile, Ford awaits the future of his company. It's potentially a life-changing moment, not just for Ford, but for the future of every industry in America. In a surprise decision, the court rules in favor of Henry Ford. Alum has no legal claim to the design of the car. Ford's battle against Alum in the state lasted from 1903 until 1911. At some point early in the fight, Ford could have negotiated a peace treaty with Alum, but that would have violated his principles. Ford was once asked, what's your greatest ambition? To be free, a free man, he shot back. Ford knew that he could not be free so long as the alum patent clouded the destiny he had marked out for himself. Ford's destiny is made a reality, and the car belongs to everyone. Ford's success put him forward in American life as a new kind of businessman. But in crucial ways, unlike Rockefeller or Carnegie, he wasn't trying to gain a monopoly. He was trying to bring a product to the people. The American population ate this up and they made Henry Ford a kind of folk hero. Ford seizes the momentum and his factories go into overdrive. Every few months, Ford introduces a new model, making his way through the alphabet. But the Model K is too heavy and expensive. The Model N, though lighter and cheaper, has an engine cast in four pieces rather than one block. Ford keeps at it and hits the jackpot with the Model T. Here again is John Stoudemire. I think it was the same kind of excitement that the Man on the Moon mission people had. There are a handful of those kinds of moments in American history where there's a dream that is so big in its potential, and you think you got it, and then you get it. Ford's assembly line starts producing this revolutionary new car at a record rate. The Model T costs only $825. It's a four-cylinder, 20-horsepower, five-passenger family car. Powerful, speedy, and enduring. A car that looks good, and is as good as it looks. The response is immediate and overwhelming. Orders pour in from doctors and farmers. Americans who have never dreamed of becoming motorists can now afford Henry Ford's Model T. And what a story, and my goodness, some breaking points, some turning points in his life. Winning that race, and of course starting the company that had one, well, failed launch. And Mark Cuban, well, he put it right. Those big guys 
at Allen were trying to take advantage of this little guy and using law, patent law, and every other legal trick. And luckily for Ford, after an eight-year struggle in the courts, the courts, well, they let Ford be a free man, and he was free to compete. And this ushered in the Model T and modern transportation as we know it and the automobile. When we come back, this remarkable life story, Henry Ford's story, continues here on Our American Story. at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with the life of Henry Ford. And my goodness, storytelling doesn't get better than this, folks, about an American icon. So much of this I didn't know myself. And all of our history pieces are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And that's everything from our This Day in Histories to a story like Henry Ford's, which, my goodness, you don't have to peg it to a date to want to hear more. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here's historians Greg Grandin and Hacia Diner. The Model T changed everything. It gave people a new sense of power and authority and control over their lives. You can go wherever you wanted and you can go by yourself. You can get in your car and you have access now to towns, to cities, to places that were beyond your reach just a few years earlier. They are also remarkably durable. Here's historian Douglas Brinkley. They didn't break down a lot compared to other vehicles, and when they did, they were very simple to repair. This wasn't somebody just genieing out a product. This was a quality to the economical car that the world had never even imagined could be possible. Part of the enduring myth of the Model T is that all of them were black. But when the Model T first came on the market, customers could get almost any color except black. Blue, gray, green, and red were all available. It was not until five years later that the any color so long as it's black policy was finally implemented. Then in 1913, Ford enacted another amazing advancement with the implementation of standardized interchangeable parts. Unlike other cars at the time, every Model T produced on the line used the exact same valves, gas tanks, tires, etc., so that they could be assembled in a speedy and organized fashion. 1,000 cars a day roll out of the factory in 1914, 2,000 in 1916, and as productivity goes up, the price goes down. Soon, 60% of all cars made in the U.S. are Model Ts. And by 1927, Ford has rolled 15 million through his assembly lines. All this success didn't concern Ford much. 
Workers report seeing him take a crumpled up piece of paper out of his pocket, only to discover that it is a check for $68,000. Henry stuffed it in there and then forgot all about it. To Ford, making money didn't make a person successful. As he later wrote, to do for the world more than the world does for you, that is success. One small yet very significant and relatively unknown success for Ford was his popularization of an incendiary little brick that helps fire up our grills. One of the primary raw materials Ford used to build his Model T's was wood. So he sent a friend to look for forest land to purchase in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. To find out how using wood to build Model T's led to a building block of the backyard barbecue, let's hear from Matt Anderson, the curator of transportation of the Henry Ford. Ford was building Model T's by the hundreds of thousands every year, and he was starting to think about vertical integration, not just owning the factories that built the cars, but all of the raw materials that went into them. Looking for forest land up there, he hired a fellow by the name of Edward Kingsford. He was a Ford dealer, he had some experience with real estate, and not incidentally, he was married to Henry Ford's first cousin. So he goes around and finds over 300,000 acres that Henry Ford purchases, and then Ford builds a sawmill right there on the site to build the bodies and then send them down to the plant in Dearborn. Henry Ford's lumber mill was producing hundreds of thousands of board feet of lumber each day, so there was a lot of wood waste coming out of that. And Ford thought, rather than throw away all this waste, what if we could turn it into a commercial product? And that's where the charcoal briquette idea came from. It's been said that Ford had some outside help in developing the exact chemistry behind his charcoal briquettes and the makeup of the plant. In fact, it's been said that Thomas Edison assisted to some extent in that. And whether it's true or not, it is for sure that Edison came up and visited Ford's Upper Peninsula land holdings in 1923. As long as Henry was alive and Ford Motor Company was producing it, it was sold under the Ford brand name, just like the cars. After Henry Ford dies in 1947, the company slowly begins to move away from this vertical integration idea. They sell off their businesses in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, including the charcoal business, which then another company buys, and they rename the product Kingsford after the town where Ford had founded up there, which was named for Edward Kingsford. By 1963, barbecues like cars were icons of American leisure. As an article in Reader's Digest observed, cooking with charcoal is now as deeply ingrained in American life as the long weekend and the servantless kitchen. At the end of 1927, Ford introduces the newly improved Model A. This new design is revolutionary. It's a 65 mile per hour beauty it incorporates things like headlights, a windshield, and even a turnkey ignition. He also introduces a new way of buying a car, financing, a method that is still the most common way of buying a car to this very day. Cutting prices enable Ford to achieve what are his two aims in life, to bring the pleasures of the automobile to as many people as possible and to provide a large number of high-paying jobs for his workers. Here's business historian Murray Klein. Henry Ford created what became the most important industry in the American economy. He had no idea of the enormous impact it would have on almost every sector of American life. He literally changed America, the way we live, the way we do things, 
and the way we go about our business. Ford's reputation won't always be so positive, but his revolution inspires an entire generation of visionaries who will transform the fabric of American life. Childhood friends William Harley and Arthur Davidson attach an engine to a bicycle and begin selling motorcycles to the masses. Milton Hershey applies Henry Ford's assembly line model to the mass production of chocolate. Chicago merchant William Wrigley takes his chewing gum national, and in Hollywood, Polish immigrant Max Factor begins distributing cosmetics for movie stars to drugstores across the country, inventing a completely new consumer product, makeup. In the spring of 1947, Henry Ford returns home from vacation. On his second day back, heavy rain causes the Rouge River to overflow, knocking out power to the Fairlane power plant and to Henry Ford's estate. That evening, Henry and his wife turn in early, power still out in their room lit only by an oil lamp and a few candles. Before the night is out, Henry Ford, the father of mass production, the inventor of the modern age, the man who embodied the American dream, lays his head on his wife's shoulder and leaves the world just as he came into it 84 years earlier, by candlelight. In Detroit, Motorists are asked to come to a complete stop at the time the automaker's body is being lowered into the ground. At the second, when the automobiles come to a stop, Detroit returns to the way Henry Ford had found it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work, as always, by Greg Hengler, and thanks to all who contributed to this piece, all the historians, the Ford Museum, and what a life story, folks. And it doesn't get more quintessentially American than Henry Ford's story. Starts out at the family farm, not really interested in school, starts to tinker, challenges the world's greatest auto racer to a race, and he's never raced a car before, and he wins. Starts a company, it gets stolen from him, he starts it again, And he challenges a cartel and wins in court. And by the way, he does some remarkable things as a businessman. He raises wages, he cuts hours, and he brings down the cost of a car and creates a car that everyone in America can use, taking it from the purview of the rich to the ordinary and the day-to-day and giving people tremendous freedom to roam, to visit, to travel, and to live as they please. And by the way... On a secondary note, it's well chronicled that Ford had some anti-Semitic problems and problems with anti-Semitism, as did much of America. But in the end, Ford's great work on perfecting production and the means of production helped power the arsenal of democracy, which allowed America to defeat the Nazi war machine. Henry Ford's story, a terrific Michigan story, a great American story, here on Our American Stories.
For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.